Romans chapter 9. I thought it interesting, and as I was thinking about Romans chapter 9 this morning, you guys go ahead and turn to Romans 9, but I'm going to start by reading a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul is speaking about uh, our glory, or any glory that we can get in this life. Uh, we should only glory in the Lord. I think we have this tendency, uh, if we think that we were chosen by God, to ascribe the glory and the power and the, the majesty and all the, the stuff that goes along with it. We ascribe it to ourselves. But the reality is that there's one person who created us. That's the Lord. And so if we do anything that's positive or lasting, it's, it's something that can only be ascribed to his character and his name. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul writes to the Corinthian church there and he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised even, God has chosen. The things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. He says, but of him you are in Christ who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And so Paul has written this to a church in Corinth, basically telling them if there's any glory to be had, if there's anything praiseworthy going on in your lives, it's only because God saw fit to pull you out of the muck and the mire and to make something out of you. You're like a, a piece of coal that's been drug out of the coal mine and able to be used for its intended purpose. And so Paul, as he's written this, will hit on the same theme here in Romans chapter 9. Because in Romans chapter 9, at the, well actually at the end of chapter 8, he ended on this high note. He said, basically, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. It's been poured out through Jesus Christ. And he went through and he described different characteristics, different uh, oppression from without, oppression from within, uh, pride. Uh, he talked about all the created things that could possibly try to separate us from the love of God that's been poured out on us through Jesus Christ. He said, none of these can separate you from his love. And then in chapter 9, it's like he has this moment of just, uh, he goes to the highest of heights and then he drops down to the bottom of the valley and he describes this thing that he carries with him. It's a burden that kind of makes him physically worn out and just depressed in a way. He goes from the end of chapter 8 where he's described this mountaintop experience that nothing can stop God from loving us and then he comes to this other side and he says, but I have to tell you something that my heart is broken and he says, my heart is broken for the children of Israel, the nation of the Jews, the, God, the people that God called out and made him his own people, the people that he decided to dwell amongst and give his law to and give his uh, character to. He gave them the service in the temple. They were to continually keep a lamp burning and to make the sacrifices for the nation. 
and to praise him amongst many nations that did not know the true and living God. They were worshiping all these false gods. And he said, I'm going to send you into this land, to the land of Canaan. And while you're there, you're going to be a witness to the fact that I'm a real God, that I'm the only real God that can save. And it's amazing to me because the people of that land were worshiping false gods. They were doing all that they could to please these gods. And what God says in his word is that you don't, have, you don't bring anything to me that will please me. I'm going to be the sacrifice. I'm going to be the one who saves you. I'm going to be the one that gives you everything to do that which I've called you to do. And so God provides us with what we need in order to serve him. And yet the idols of the land, they didn't give anything. They expected everything from their worshipers. And so Paul talking about the nation of Israel, he talks a little bit about the fact that God chooses based on his right to choose. One person, he chooses to bless, and the other, he chooses to not bless. And in so doing, they end up kind of to the world and to us looking like they've been cursed. And so God's favor on a person's life makes them blessed, and God's basically not favor makes them look not blessed. And, and so today we're going to talk about basically the fact that God blesses some and he does not bless others. And why is that? Why does he choose one person and not another? And it's a hard thing to discuss because we who are here, we recognize that God chose us, but hopefully you have the right idea that God didn't choose you because you had something to offer him. God is self-sustaining. He doesn't need us. And yet somehow in his plan, he decides to put himself into us and bring glory to his name through our kind of duct tape together lives. And so he talked about last week how, I better get to my notes before I get off on my tangent. He talks about how God chose Isaac and how God chose Jacob and not Esau. If you remember how the nation of Israel started, God chose Abraham. Abraham lived to be almost a hundred and some years old, but when he was almost a hundred, he had already had a son named Ishmael. And he had that son, not with his wife, but with his wife's maidservant. God had promised, I'm going to give you a descendant, and he will be the son of promise, and through him I will bless the nations. I will provide for you descendants that will be more than the sand, the granules of sand on the seashore. And if you've ever been to the beach, it's like you can't count them is the idea. So God said, I'm going to bless you in order to make you a blessing. And so he blessed Abraham at almost 100 years old when it seemed impossible, and it is impossible, and his wife brought or gave birth to a son named Isaac. And Isaac was the second son, and yet God said, through your son Isaac, I will bless you. I will, he will inherit the blessing that I gave to you, Abraham. And Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael... My first son should live before you. He said, that's not the son of promise. That's the son of the flesh. Because if you remember, they were trying to help God out. And so the culture in that day is, if I can't have a child, I'll take my wife's maidservant. I'll lay with her, provide a child. She'll give birth on my knees. That's what Sarai would think. Hagar gave birth to Ishmael while sitting on the lap of Sarah, which is crazy. And then this child is born and she goes, since it was born on my lap, it's mine. Well, God said, no, I'm literally going to give you a child. And of course, when he told them that, Sarah laughed 
And Isaac, the name Isaac means laughter. And so when she was, when the world, in the world's eyes, impossible to conceive and give birth, she did, according to God's promise. And so that son is the, the child, the heir of the promise that God would multiply them as many as the sands of the seashore. And then he gives another example about Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah, they get pregnant. They have two nations within them. That's what the prophet tells them. And when they have these two children and their twins wrestling with each other, she's a little disturbed. And basically the Lord tells them, you have two nations rivaling in your belly. And then when they're almost born, basically Esau comes out first and they wrap a cord around his leg. And then out comes this hand and pulls the foot back in. And then Jacob comes out first. And that's why they named Jacob, Jacob, because it means heel catcher, one who supplants, one who connives and schemes. He, he said, no, I'm coming out first. And so he shoved his way out. And little brothers do that, right? My brother was a cheap shot artist. Now, I'm not saying that I wasn't and probably didn't deserve it because I probably did. But the reality was is Jacob was a heel catcher. And so he was named that. But God said, the older will serve the younger about Jacob and Esau. And to us, that makes no difference. We're like, okay, well, maybe he was more successful. But to them, if you were the firstborn, then you got the blessing. You inherited the promises. You carried on the family business. You got the the biggest portion of whatever your parents had to give you. But God said, I'm going to bless Jacob. And so we ended last week in verse 13. It says, as it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. Now, that does not mean that God said, I hate you, Esau. That means the love, the blessing that he gave Jacob, in comparison, looked like he didn't like Esau at all. He made him basically second rate. But notice in the verses before that, in verse 10, it says, not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election or choice might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. God didn't select Jacob. God didn't select Isaac based on what the world would use to select them. We go, hey, that guy's got potential. I want to use him on my team. Whether it's kickball or whether it's a management team for a company, we have ideas and we look at someone perform. Even in major league sports, what do they do? They send out scouts. And they watch these guys play and they go, that guy's got some talent. I want him on my team. I want to pay him. He's going to be a good player. But God doesn't do that. Remember the passage I read in 1 Corinthians 1. He chooses the things that are not. He chooses even the things that are despised to put to shame those who are wise. And I love that because otherwise I wouldn't have been chosen. You know, many people go, well, God chose me. And I'm like, well, if he chose you, that means you didn't have anything to offer. And he's going to get all the glory through your life. Not because you're something, but because you're nothing, he's going to make something out of you. I like that. Because the people that I know that really know the Lord have that perspective and it makes them humble. And so basically he's telling this this rule of God's choosing is not based on earning it or even being able to be chosen because you got something, but because God chooses based on simply his sovereign right to choose whoever he wants. And that that really bums some people out because they're like, well, 
That's not fair. But God doesn't have to be fair. He doesn't have anybody to answer to. He gets to make his own decisions. And if he did have somebody to answer to, that person or that being, that would be God, not him. And so God doesn't answer to anyone. So in verse 14, Paul writes this. He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. If God chooses based on just his simply wanting to choose whether the person earned it or not, does that make God unrighteous? If God chose who he would bless or not bless based on their deserving it or not, no one would throw up a red flag and say, that's not fair. They'd go, well, that makes sense. But since he does it based on his choosing, people question him. They try to put themselves in the place of God and say, well, is that really fair? Can you really do that? Of course, God just laughs. He says, yes, I can. I'm God. You're not. But then in verse 15, he says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, or I like to put the word in there, performs, not of him who wills, it's not of him who is able to perform, but of God who shows mercy. And the scripture even says of Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. See, God has a purpose for every single human being. Not just the godly, but also the ungodly. He says that the kings, uh, the will of the king, the people that are in power, they can't make a decision without it going through the Lord's hands. He's even in charge of ungodly rulers. He's got purposes for every single person. But in all of this, we need to remember that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should obtain everlasting life. But the reality is, is when God blesses us or has a purpose for us, we react based on who we really are. Jacob and Pharaoh are both examples of that. And Moses was told by the Lord, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. Moses didn't say, well, why? He understood what, what God meant at that point. He understood that what God meant was, it's up to me, you're not God, I am. And then even pointing out that in, in the purpose of Pharaoh, what he was doing was he was also being long-suffering and patient with him. Remember to the book of Exodus, before they crossed over the Red Sea, the Pharaoh had the children of Israel. They had been there for some 400 years. And little by little, the Pharaoh forgot why they were there. See, originally the Pharaoh knew that they were there because the son of Abraham, or excuse me, the son of Jacob, Joseph, was brought there, not because he wanted to be there, but because his brothers sold him into slavery. And when he got there, God allowed him to have favor with everyone whom he served. And eventually he becomes basically the second to Pharaoh. And God gives him wisdom to be able to interpret the Pharaoh's dreams. So what happens is basically having all this favor with Pharaoh, he ends up bringing his whole family because at that time there was a famine in the land. Nobody had any food. And so the Israelites all come in. There was 70 of them or so. And by the time they leave, there's millions but over 400 years, they multiplied and they blessed 
the nation of Egypt because of the Israelites. And at some point, one of the pharaohs said, you know, look at all these people. We could be using them. And so he used them to build his buildings. And he stopped paying them. He started oppressing them. He made them his slaves. And as they cried out, and they said, God, save us from this. Where have you left us? Why are we here? We feel like we're forsaken. God heard their prayers and he sent Moses to deliver them. So Moses goes. God says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to ask him, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. Okay, well, did, did God have to ask Pharaoh to let his people go? No, he could have taken them. But in order to show his power and his glory, he allowed Pharaoh to make the choice. And so as Pharaoh would harden his heart against the Lord, the Lord would allow a plague to take place. And we know the story of all the plagues. Well, they didn't have to be plagued. If the Pharaoh would have responded and said, okay, take them, it would have been over. And God would have gotten glory through that. But instead, he kept hardening his heart and telling God no, and telling God no. Well, if you tell God no enough, eventually he says, okay, we can harden our hearts against him. And eventually he says, I'm going to harden your heart against me. He sets in place what we choose. He gives us over to what we decide. And so the idea is that even in Pharaoh rejecting God, God got glory. He showed his power. He showed his strength and he delivered his people anyway. But he also gave Pharaoh the ability to either repent or reject. So, verse 18. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and on whom he wills he hardens. What is mercy? What is grace? Grace is us receiving what we don't deserve. God blesses us. He gives us something that we haven't earned. What is mercy? Mercy is God not punning, not giving us something that we do deserve. His wrath. And so another definition, which I like a little bit better for mercy, is compassion in action. We have the ability to have compassion and make actions that show that we have compassion. God's able to do this. And his compassion is what delivered the people from Egypt. So God chooses based on his right to choose. Verse 19, he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted God's will? So Paul pronounces a second question here. He says, if by God's choosing and his design, there are some people that will reject and there will some people that will repent, then why does God still blame the ones who reject him and judge them and pour out his wrath upon them? Aren't they just doing what he made them to do? I can't help it. God made me this way. You've heard this. I can't help but sin because God made me this way. So how can God judge them if he made them that way? That's the question. And it's a good question because if God's in complete control and I'm a sinner in need of grace, but I can't earn it. And it takes God opening my eyes, giving me the faith to repent. Then how can me? Then how can He blame me if I will not repent? 
That's a good question. It's a hard question. But I love that I don't have to answer it because the scripture does. He says there in verse 20, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Think about it like this. He's saying, you guys have seen potters. Now, we don't have people sitting in their shop with a little wheel making potter, pottery and stuff, but some of us have done that in class. We did when I was in school. They gave us the clay and we wet it. We make, you know, of course my dad smoked, so I made an ashtray. You know, but you can, out of the same lump, you can make two different things. You can choose to make a wonderful tea kettle to put on the table that everyone will see. You can paint it or you can make a spittoon. Now, not both of them are equal on the side of us, right? We say, oh, spittoon, that thing's nasty. Or we see, you know, the same thing happen with porcelain. Think about porcelain. What do they make out of porcelain and ceramics? Well, coffee cups, toilets. Now, there are some that are honorable, like a coffee cup. It's my favorite thing to grab in the morning. And there are some that are dishonorable. We only use it when we need it, you know. And so the reality is, is that based on the person that's using that material, they get to choose what it's made into. The same is true for uh, a turkey breeder. Think about that. Around Thanksgiving time, nobody points to the, the turkey farmer and says, how can you choose some for your breeding stock and some for me to destroy and eat? Nobody complains about that, right? God's given us in the same way that he has the ability to choose what things are used for. We use some wood to make a chair and some wood to burn and keep warm. I don't understand why God does it this way, but I know that the scripture teaches that God chooses some to show his wrath and some to show his grace. Now, what is our part in that? We're not complete robots. We have a choice. The way that we respond to God shows and proves what we are and then it gives us the results of it. He says there in verse um, 21, well, excuse me, 22, we already read 21. He says, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering or patience, what if God, wanting to make his wrath known and his power known, endured with long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So the question is, and he uses the word prepared twice in those two verses. One time he uses the word prepared to talk about those who will receive God's wrath. And in the other sentence he uses the word prepared to describe those who will receive God's grace. Prepared in the first sense, talking about the wrath, is used this way. The first instance is referring to the vessels of wrath, and it literally means they have prepared themselves to receive wrath. And then the second, it has to do with the vessels of glory, and it literally means which he prepared. We prepare ourselves and he prepares us. 
And it's all based on our response to his goodness. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's a hard thing to teach, but the reality is, is how we react to God's chastening, to God's drawing us, it prepares us for our final destination. So, here's what one commentator said. He says, If we are doomed, it is because of our rejection of God, which we do to prepare ourselves for our own destruction. But, this is a big but, not the B-U-T-T, but it's a big contrast. But, if we are redeemed, it is only because of the grace of God, which he gives those who come to him in faith and response to his love and his drawing. And then, as a result of us coming to him, being drawn by his grace, he prepares us for glory. I've heard it said this way, since we've been talking about fishing a lot. God cleans every fish that he catches. Every single fish that he gets a hold of, remember he said he'd make his disciples fishers of men. If God's gotten a hold of your life, you're not sure whether or not he's gotten a hold of you, let me ask you, is he cleansing you? Is he transforming you? Is he making you more like his son? He cleans every fish that he's caught. Let me tell you, if you're not, if it's not changing because of your relationship with Jesus, he hasn't caught you. You're still in your sins. You're not any different. You're still your own. You're preparing yourself for the day of wrath. But if you receive his grace, you will call on his name for salvation. The reality is, he will also prepare you for your destination in glory. So, Paul then goes, excuse my voice, Paul then goes from generalities to specifics. The point is that it's only by God's grace that anyone can be saved. He says in verse 24, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. You see, he's talking about how the Israelites have rejected the Messiah that God sent to them. One of the prophets writes and says, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Now, to us, we're like, why not? Why wouldn't they see the Savior? We sang that song this morning, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They sang that about him when he came into Jerusalem. But the same people that sang his praises thought he was going to be a political savior. He would come in and be their king. And when he didn't turn out to be what he thought they thought he was supposed to be, they cried out on the same, in the same lungs that God gave them to breathe with. They cried out, crucify him, kill him. And so Paul writes about the fact that even though the Jews rejected him, we've gotten the opportunity to receive salvation. So in verse 25, he quotes from the book of Hosea. He says, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. We can be adopted into the beloved. That word for beloved is what we would call our bride. God's bride was the nation of Israel. And when they didn't come to the wedding, basically he said, anybody who wants to come, come. 
He's made us his people who were not once his people. And then in verse 27, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Remember in the beginning of chapter 9, he said, not all who are of Israel are actually of Israel. They, Jacob had many descendants, but not just, it's not about being born into a family. It's about you continuing on in the relationship of faith with your Creator. So not just because you're an Israelite are you saved. You have to have your faith in the one that God sent. Verse 28, For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And then as Isaiah said before, <coughs> unless the Lord of Seboeth had left us a seed, and the Lord of Seboeth is the, the other translation is the Lord of hosts, or as we sing in our songs, the Lord of angel armies. Unless he had left us a seed, we would have been like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. And the idea is, is without God leaving a seed of faithful people, passing on this inheritance of Jacob, this inheritance of Israel, this relationship with God that was by faith, we would have been desolate. There would be no more opportunity to be saved. Sodom and Gomorrah was judged by the Lord, and to this day, if you go to the place where it was destroyed, it's completely desolate. There's nothing growing there. It was destroyed for eternity. Verse 30, he boils it all down. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, in other words, trying to attain it on their own, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why is this? Verse 32, because they did not seek it by faith but as it were, by the works of the law. They tried to earn it. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. The idea is written in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes must believe that God is, that he exists, and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so the idea is the nation of Israel missed out on the Savior because they tried to earn God's favor rather than receiving the gift of salvation that was going to be given to them freely. And because they, they were stumbled by it, because they thought, well, I thought we had to earn it, they didn't look for somebody giving it out. But then there were those that came behind them and said, hey, I'm not of the nation of Israel. I have no way to be delivered to salvation. This Savior, who was preached to all of us, I'm in, because I don't know the law. I wasn't raised with the law. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. That's my story. I wasn't raised in a place where God was the number one standard. I was raised where I was raised. So what do I do? If righteousness is something I have to attain to, I know I can't do it. And God says, believe on my son, and you will not be put to shame. That's what he says. He quotes from Isaiah he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. If you're hiking down Tom Sock 
or Johnson shut-ins, you're going down a narrow train trail, and there's a rock in the middle of the path. You can do one of two things. You can stumble over it and ignore it and trip over it, or you can stand on it. And that's what he's saying. The nation of Israel weren't looking for him, so they tripped over him. He was an offense to them. He, he didn't do everything the way that he thought he should. But to the Gentiles, they were like, hey, everything in my life has always been shaky. That guy doesn't move. He believes in what he believes in. He does the will of the Father. He's not shaken by anything. I'm going to stand on that guy. He doesn't waver. Everything in my life, my life is wavering. I need something that I can trust in. So to close, I'm going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 because Peter writes about this same idea. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. He writes to the early church, Peter does, and he's writing to the Jewish diaspora, which is just a, a fancy word that means the, the spread out ones, the scattered ones, the scattered seed. And an early Jewish church, basically, there was a group of 3,000 that were saved on the day of Pentecost, and, and Judaism, basically, there was a big group that was saved by the preaching of those who spoke with tongues on the day of Pentecost. But after that, it wasn't so uh, politically correct to be a Christian. And they started being persecuted. So they were spread throughout all the different lands. And Peter is one of the letters that's written to this Jewish diaspora. And he writes to these Jews who have been saved to remind them that their salvation is not by works, but it's by grace. And he says there in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, coming to him, thank you, Richard, He says, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, and he quotes that same scripture from Isaiah, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, chosen, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And then he gives some application. He says, therefore, verse 7, to you who believe, he is precious. To those who believe in Jesus, he is precious because he is what we base our hope for our entire life on. But to those who are disobedient, he quotes from Isaiah, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And the, the chief cornerstone is the one on the building on the courthouse that has the stamp of the year it was built. It's the one that everything is built off of. If you've ever built anything out of wood or stone, to keep it square, you have to have a stone that's perfectly square and shaped and it won't be moved. It has the deepest footing of the whole building. It holds it together. And Jesus is that chief cornerstone of the house of God. The house of God is not a, a, a building. It's not the church down the street. It's not this building. It's, it's the household of faith. Those who trust in the Lord are those living stones he's talking about. But to those who are disobedient, that stone is rejected by them and he's the Lord of all. 
but then he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. If you tell anybody that's self-righteous and thinks that they can get to heaven on their own, that they need Jesus and nothing that they can do can measure up, guess what? They're going to stumble on the stone who's going to be an offense to them. If you tell them, no, no, you, you need a Savior, you're drowning, they're like, no, I can swim on my own. No, you can't, I'm telling you, you can't. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But here's what he says to the household of faith in verse 9. But you, don't worry about them. You are a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're his own special people. In the old King James it says you're his own peculiar people. I like that better. I don't think myself as special. I think of myself as a little bit peculiar. God's made a nation of his own people that are peculiar. We're not like the rest of them, and it's okay. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The reality is, is for some to be saved, there are some that are not. If everyone's saved, then we're not really saved, are we? We all get to go. But in order for us to be saved, there's going to be a group that'll be an example of disobedience that will stumble on the Lord. They will never receive the righteousness of God. They will never get to see the place that God had prepared for them. And they're going to experience God's wrath. Now, how do we know who's chosen and who's not? We don't. So the idea is not to see people as chosen and not, and not, and we're, there are groups, believe it or not, that go, well, if not everybody's chosen, then I don't know if I should share the gospel with everybody. But they don't have a sign on their said that says born for wrath. And I don't believe that God is willing that there's a group that's planned ahead of time to, to destroy. But we do know that somehow in the scheme of things that God has chosen and so we're to preach the gospel to every living creature, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As many as will come and believe by faith, they are the ones who inherit the promise. And so let me ask you this morning, are you of the sons of disobedience? Or are you of those who trusted by faith? And those of you who trusted by faith, do you take hold of this promise that says, He's made us a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood, the priests would represent God to man and they would represent, represent man to God. They would pray for people and then they would also represent his heart for the people, to the people. So do you do that? Are you a holy nation? Is God purifying your life? Do you see yourself as a special person that God's chosen for his purposes? Do you proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light? And do you recognize that you were once not a people and God's now made you a people? We're going to take communion this morning. And the idea is that God's people get to gather together until the day that Jesus comes back and we will eat with him at the bride's supper of the Lamb. It'll be a great celebration for all those who have been redeemed and redeemed and saved saved by his grace. So at this point, we, we recognize communion until he returns. And so this is an opportunity not only to, to have a meal together, as it were, until we have the, the real meal that it's pointing to, 
but it's also an opportunity to reflect upon our lives and say, Lord, where am I really at right now? Am I living a life of faith or am I living life as if there is no God? Because the reality is, is we're tempted to do either each way, each day. And so Lord, the Lord gives us this opportunity. It's almost like a timeout, not a punishment, but a timeout to say, Lord, where am I really at? Assess my heart, point to me and, and show me where I need to be. And if I'm not there, help me to repent and turn around. So uh, we're going to sing a song. And as we sing that song, uh, you guys are allowed to come up, uh, grab some of the bread and the cup, and then I'll lead you through communion after this song.